Edge of Sports is brought to you by FreshBooks. For freelancers and small business owners, FreshBooks takes the pain out of accounting. Have a question about the service? A real live human will answer every call in about three rings. Get your 30-day free trial by going to freshbooks.com edge and entering the code word edge. Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This weekend, the eyes of the world turned to Santa Clara for Super Bowl 50. And on this show, we bring you a voice you will hear on no other sports programming in this week of sports hype. We have radical political theorist and MIT linguistics professor Noam Chomsky. You know what you call that? Brilliant counterprogramming. Well, the way colleges are picking up athletes and grooming them for the professional world seems to be really pretty sick. I've gone to visit in college campuses where the first thing you see is the stadium and the next thing you see is the uh, skyscraper nearby where the athletes are housed. And they take these poor kids, often black kids, who have a very small chance of getting anywhere. And uh, instead of giving them an education, which could enable them to have a decent life, uh, send them off to this uh, uh, system in which uh, they can be exploited for private gain and become famous themselves, maybe, but then left out to pasture. Yes, this will be a sports interview with Professor Noam Chomsky, the first of his highly illustrious career. Now, some of you may know that Noam Chomsky has a highly critical perspective of the world of sports, and we're going to do a deep dive into his views on all of that. We're also going to talk to him about Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, the linguistic differences between sports and games, and this is not a joke. We are going to hear Noam Chomsky's Super Bowl prediction. So, hey, let's kick it off. You've done so many interviews over the years. I mean, hundreds, thousands, who knows. Uh, is this your first sports interview? Um, very likely. <laughs> <laughs> you, all right, so I'm going to need a Super Bowl prediction from you before we're done, okay? My expertise about sports is rather patchy. It's pretty strong on the late 1930s. Well, <laughs> um, the, I'm a little bit in the... 1990s, because I had a jock grandson. <laughs> when he was about 12, 13, he wanted to go to all the professional games. So I took him to the Red Sox, um, Celtics, you know, football games. Other than that, it's um, usually reading up for a couple of days when I have to go to the barber, so we'll have something to talk about. <laughs> so I, I know that you, you grew up in Philly as a, as a baseball fan. Uh, is that right? Yeah, I grew up in Philly, and uh, every boy in my generation has a complex of uh, failure. (laughs) The reason was the Philadelphia teams were in last place in every sport, and our cousins were all in New York, where the teams were all in first place in everything. So we were constantly getting uh, treated as... uh, Total failures. We all have inferiority complexes. Do you think growing up as a Philadelphia sports fan uh, sort of shaped why you see yourself as standing on the side of working people and the oppressed throughout the world? Is there a connection? 
No, I don't think so. <laughs> For a first-generation Jewish kids, baseball was a form of Americanization. You had to know everything about the statistics, you know, the players, uh, everything else, especially, especially baseball in those days. Uh, do, do you have a favorite player that you remember? Yeah, but they were all on the Yankees, unfortunately. <laughs> in fact, the first baseball game I went to, in fact, the only one I went to, because I couldn't afford it, was uh, in 1937, I guess. My fourth grade teacher took my best friend and me to see a, a game, the A's and the Yankees. And the Yankees had all the great players. Uh, Red Ruffing was pitching, uh, Lou Gehrig, uh, Joe DiMaggio was out in center field. We were sitting right behind him. Uh, it looked as if the A's would win. But in the seventh inning, the Yankees made seven runs and won 10 to 7. So. Wow. You know, for a lot of folks in your generation, something that was radicalizing was seeing that there was this thing called the Negro Leagues and why was it separate from the major leagues? And then Jackie Robinson, of course, breaks the color line. Do you, do you remember any any thoughts about any of those issues? I did become interested in the uh, way that the black players were excluded in basketball, too. The Harlem Globetrotters were a favorite. We'll fast forward now to the, the, the 21st century here. Um, so what role do you think that sports, professional sports, corporate sports, what role do you think they play in our society? Well, all you have to do is look at the television statistics. They play a huge role, uh, whether they should or not, and what the significance of that is is another matter. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with people enjoying going to a baseball game in the afternoon with their grandson, let's say. That's fine. But if it becomes an obsession and it becomes the core of your life, then it's pretty shocking. In fact, I'm kind of struck. Sometimes when I'm driving, I listen to uh, talk radio, that kind of thing. And it's pretty striking to me how when issues come to sports, people are, the people who call in are not only very knowledgeable, but extremely self-confident. Mm -hmm. So they tell the coach that he's making this mistake and that mistake. And they're, they know a lot. They can argue their points and so on. But when it comes to... Uh, things that matter in human life, it's quite different, which is a dangerous phenomenon. Yeah, I read an interview you gave where, where you spoke about the experience of listening to sports radio, and one of the things you said that was really striking to me was that in sports, it seems like people, particularly working people, aren't humbled by experts, but feel like they could bring their own expertise to the table. Why do you think that is, that people get so humbled by these daft-headed politicians speaking about their health care or their jobs. But when it comes to sports, there's a different kind of confidence. Uh, there's several reasons, I think. One is, in the case of things that matter, political, social issues, there's a huge amount of uh, propaganda and indoctrination that tells people, look, uh, leave this to your betters. You're not up to this. You, know, you have to have special knowledge and understanding and uh, you know, just go away and leave it to others and you pay attention to your, your own affairs. In sports, that's not true. Nobody says that. I think another factor is that in the social and political areas, 
people really don't believe much about what they hear. They just distrust everyone. You can see that in the current electoral phenomena. A lot of what's uh, happening is just, we don't believe a word you're saying. You're cheating us. You're gangsters. And that's what happens in a society where there is nothing in the political system, really, that responds to the concerns and interests and needs of uh, working people. It was very different when you had working class organizations, like especially the unions. So if you go back to, say, the 1930s again, my childhood, what drove the New Deal measures was uh, working class militancy, working class solidarity and militancy. Um, in the early years of the 30s, these strikes were broken up violently, but by about 34, 35, they were, they were winning. CIO organizing began. It, was, it shifted Roosevelt from a conventional politician to a, someone with sympathy for popular needs and aspirations, and uh, it essentially drove the New Deal measures. There was a sense of a, a hopefulness and exhilaration that came out from it. We can do things on our own. We don't have to wait for them to do things for us. We'll press them to do what we want. We have the power. And that lasted through a good bit of the 30s. It was kind of declining by the late 30s already because of the 1937 depression. And then, of course, came the war and things changed. But that's what's missing. In the post-war period, uh, the United States, unlike other comparable societies, doesn't have any sort of labor-based party. It has uh, essentially regional parties, which are all business parties uh, with varying degrees of commitment to popular needs. And the uh, unions in the United States in the post-war period took a different course than uh, unions in comparable countries. Even in Canada, the same unions acted differently. In the United States, the uh, UAW and other major unions did seek and to an extent obtain um, some kind of roughly social democratic gains for their own members. In, say, Canada, they sought the same gains for the population. Well, that's why they, one of the main reasons why they have national health care in Canada, but not here. When the unions make a deal with the corporation, class collaboration, it's a losing deal because as soon as the business class decides you're, it's finished, it's finished. And that's what's been happening in the past uh, 30, 35 years. It was a famous statement, which you probably remember, by Doug Fraser, the head of the UAW. It was in 79. And, and he said something about how he's just learned that business is fighting a one-sided class war. Yeah, it was a little, it's right, but it's a little late to learn that. And those last 35 years have also coincided with an explosion of sports as a global industry. It has. I mean, you're tempted to think this is uh, the way the gladiatorial contests keep people away from what matters. It certainly correlates. I don't suggest that it's designed that way. But as the policies that are being implemented under the neoliberal regimes undermine the people's hopes and aspirations and even basic needs. And as the institutions of popular action, primarily the unions, but also political organizations, as they decline, people may just tend to drift towards uh, what they can become involved in and doesn't really matter. 
Now, you've written and we've already just spoken about this question of sports and does it matter politically and how it largely doesn't matter politically in terms of the very basic needs that people have in their lives. But what about the phenomenon of athletes largely who, who come from working class backgrounds, uh, people of color, uh, women, gay people who use the platform to speak out about politics and try to shape politics in a more resistance-oriented direction. Athletes who, uh, at the Olympic Games, who refused to uh, honor at the Mexico Games, say, right. or gay athletes and others. Sure, that's good. I mean, that's uh, an effort to bring serious issues into uh, uh, the entertainment world. And uh, one can only admire their, their courage and commitment. Maybe they make some progress that way. Now, in the 1960s, when you were, you were battling it out with William F. Buckley uh, about the Vietnam War, uh, you, of course, had Muhammad Ali uh, say you know, he had no quarrel with them, Viet Cong, and refused to enter the draft. Uh, what, what do you remember about your impressions of Muhammad Ali at that time? I admired what he was saying. I had no contact with him. I was, I was, I mean, Buckley was essentially nothing. That was one evening. But I was very much involved in uh, uh, anti-war activism from the early 60s, by the mid-60s, and resistance activities of all kinds, uh, support for draft resistance, tax resistance, and so on. And uh, that was a consuming concern. And when Muhammad Ali uh, made his comments, that was beneficial. But I, other than that, I had no connection to it. I, I always associate you with Ali because what you have in common is I've watched a lot of those old Buckley shows and you both refuse to be bullied by him when he talks about the Vietnam War. It's actually, it's very similar the way you guys stand up to him, despite being very different people, obviously. The, the, the reason I do raise this, and, and I, I rejoice in your disposition to argue the Vietnam question especially when I recognize what an act of self-control this must uh, involve. It does. Sure. It really does. I mean, I think and, that this is the kind of well. issue where well. you know, sometimes I lose my temper. Maybe not tonight. Maybe not tonight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, if you would, I'd smash you in the goddamn face. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, <clears throat> you say, you say in your book... reason for not losing my <laughs> You say the war is simply an obscenity, a depraved act by weak and miserable men. Including all of us including myself, well, including then, every, that's the next sentence. Well, I, to tell you the truth, I, he struck me as kind of a comic figure, uh, kind of a blowhard who didn't know what he was talking about. And, you know, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it, frankly. At the end of the interview, he, uh, he was infuriated. And when he walked off the stage there, he said, he, he screamed at me that he's going to have me back and show me a thing or two. But, <laughs> we'll be right back with Professor Noam Chomsky, but first, a quick word to all the freelancers and small business owners out there from FreshBooks. Folks, I don't take advertisers who I don't believe in, and FreshBooks has helped me out a lot, so I can vouch for this. For a better way to manage your books and make tax season easy, try FreshBooks, a cloud accounting software designed exclusively for service-based small business owners. It's the personal accountant you've always needed right in your pocket. 
FreshBooks is fast. You can create and send an invoice in 30 seconds. It's easy for customers to pay online. And FreshBooks clients get paid five days faster on average. Have a question about this thing? Just contact their award-winning support team and get help from real live humans. They answer every call in about three rings. From landscapers to web designers to freelancers like me, your time is better spent actually doing your work than trying to figure out your taxes and your forms and all the rest of it. FreshBooks does all that kind of heavy lifting, and believe me when I tell you, it makes a huge difference. Right now, FreshBooks is offering my listeners 30 days of unrestricted use, totally free, and you don't need a credit card to sign up. Just go to FreshBooks.com slash edge and enter edge in the how you heard about us section. That's FreshBooks.com slash edge and enter the promo code edge. And now back to our conversation on sports and politics with Noam Chomsky. Now, a family that I've become very close to uh, over the last uh, few years has been the family of Pat Tillman, the NFL player who, um, of course, was killed in Afghanistan. And I I know that when he was um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, he was reading your work a great deal and he was becoming very disillusioned with particularly the war in Iraq and he wrote you letters. Do you remember ever receiving his letters? And is that the only time that you know of an athlete reaching out to you in such a way? I, I No, it's not the only time, but I did receive a, a letter from him, him or his family, I don't remember, saying that he would like to meet when he came back from Afghanistan and we had planned to meet. And uh, the letter indicated some of the reasons, but unfortunately he was killed. Mm. That to me is just such an, a remarkable tragedy because he was built up as like this G.I. Joe, this former NFL player, and then he starts reading your work and then wants to come back and talk to you, and then he's killed. I mean, it it's enough to make one believe in conspiracy theories. No, they're kind of dubious circumstances, but uh, I don't know anything from that. Sure. And now there was another NFL player named Sam Moffitt who was making millions of dollars playing for the Denver Broncos. And in 2013, he retired abruptly and cited you as a reason why he was retiring. Um, Did you hear about that at the time? Oh, yeah, I did. I think I did hear something either from him or from someone that rings a bell. But we never had any further contact. Maybe letters, correspondence. So I would imagine that some folks in the NFL hierarchy wouldn't want you talking to players because it seems like when they do, they <laughs> they want to stop playing. Well, unfortunately, I, th- I mean, the players have very secondary knowledge about it, but it seems to me that they're treated as uh, commodities to be maximally exploited during the brief period in which they can make a lot of money for the sports team and then send out to live, for many of them, pretty awful lives. Yeah. Well, the way colleges are picking up athletes and grooming them for the professional world seems to be really pretty sick. And I've gone to visit in college campuses where the first thing you see is the stadium, and the next thing you see is the uh, skyscraper nearby where the athletes are housed and they get special instruction mm-hmm. to uh, try to get them through the exams. And they take these poor kids, often black kids, who have a very small chance of getting anywhere. And uh, instead of giving them an education, which could enable them to have a decent life, uh, send them off to this uh, 
system in which uh, they can be exploited for private gain and you know, become famous themselves, maybe, but then left out the pasture. What does that say about our universities, that they become these places that cause all this debt among students and also have built up sports to such a high degree over the last, say, 30 years? Well, that's one of the things I like about MIT. <laughs> you don't do it. But it shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be done. I mean, the University of Chicago many years ago uh, forged the right path, I think, by just dropping out of it. Mm. I have a couple of listener questions of people who listen to my show who wanted to ask you some things. Is it okay if I throw a couple at you? Sure. Great. Uh, Di Lamel wanted to ask you what you feel like the definitive linguistic difference is between sports and games. Sports and games? Yeah. Well, games are played for fun, and sports are played to win. That's one of the negative aspects of the, especially the professional sports scene. You have to be a winner. You're not involved in it because it's fun to do. Let me give you an example from uh, the way this seeps down to uh, even childhood these days. Uh, this same grandson I mentioned, who was a sports enthusiast, when he was about you know, maybe seven or eight years old, was playing in uh, local sports. But it was always team sports. It was not let's go out to that uh, field back there and whatever kids are around, we'll have a baseball game, we'll play baseball. It was team sports organized by adults. I mean, I remember once going to a soccer game of his one Saturday afternoon, he was maybe seven. The referee was maybe 11. And the parents were standing on the sideline screaming at the referee somebody pushed their kids and he didn't give them a penalty or something around the same time, maybe a couple of years later, we went over to visit one Saturday afternoon. He was happily going off to play baseball in the sports league. And he came back about an hour later, rather disconsolate. The game was called off. Why? The other team only had eight players. I mean, you, I don't tell you what baseball is like. His team couldn't offer the other team one player so that the kids could have fun. Ugh. You can't because you have to go by the rules that the adults want where it has to be professional and you have to win. That's sports at its most extreme absurdity, uh, what it's doing to children. But games are just things that you should do for fun. Mm -hmm. So um, Stanley Heller wanted me to ask you, he said, uh, there was a boycott of South African athletics under apartheid. Would you advocate that measure against Israeli athletic endeavors in support of Palestinian rights? On the same terms, yes. So, for example, in the case of South Africa, it was about uh, racial practices and admitting uh, athletes to play when they were barring black athletes. Sure, they should be boycotted. In Israel, in comparable cases, there it's nowhere near that extreme, but there are some cases, you know, same thing. Mm. Uh, Kamau Bell, who is a uh, friend of mine and also a stand-up comic, uh, wanted me to ask you, uh, with the world being such a horrible place and professional sports contributing to some of that horrible, is it okay to like sports? I think he wants your permission. Well, I told, I said earlier, I enjoy it. When I went with my grandson to 
Red Sox games. We had fun, you know, enjoyed watching it, got a hot dog, you know, watched them cheer. Everybody was happy. I don't see anything wrong with it. I mean, if you don't turn it into fanaticism, it's a perfectly enjoyable way to spend some time. And also you can admire the incredible skill of these people. It's just astonishing when you look at it. It's kind of like watching watching professional dance, you know. I'd be remiss before before you go, Professor Chomsky, and thank you so much for your time. The Iowa caucuses just happened. You, you've been in the news a lot with regards to your support of Bernie Sanders. Did did his performance in Iowa give you hope that he could actually win the Democratic nomination, that, that a socialist could run for president of the United States? Well, I think that his, what he's achieved, I think, is pretty remarkable, but I think a few comments are necessary. Sanders uses the word socialist. But at least as I see his policies, they are basically mainstream New Deal policies, which is a fine thing for the United States. Many of his policies, I I think uh, President Eisenhower would have approved of. So, for example, Eisenhower took the position that uh, anyone who doesn't accept basic New Deal programs doesn't belong in our political system. By now, that things have shifted so far to the right that that's considered an extreme leftist position. Mm-hmm. And when Sanders takes similar positions, he's considered uh, kind of an extremist, you know, the opposite end for someone who denies global warming or something. In fact, he's taking a, what ought to be a, a mainstream, sane, social democratic position in the United States, especially in the modern period, that's off the spectrum. And I think it's a very healthy phenomenon that he's bringing it up. But we shouldn't be misled by the world word socialist. And by international standards, this is moderate social democracy, sensible moderate social democracy, not very different from the New Deal policies adapted to the present moment. Now, the other point that I think is important, at least to me, is uh, uh, Sanders is succeeding in mobilizing a large number of people, mainly young people, and getting them to feel that there's something they can do to change a a pretty ugly and dangerous uh, society. The significance of the Sanders phenomenon, in my view, will be if the energy and excitement that is now being created and mobilized can be organized into a continuing force that will be the base for or a substantial part of a popular movement that just goes on and forces change through, pretty much as happened in the 1930s. Very important to remember that the significant changes that the New Deal brought came largely from popular mobilization, at that time mainly through the labor movement, which should happen again. If the Sanders phenomenon can go in that direction, I think it will make a real difference in the country. Yeah, as someone who, of course, lived through the Red Scare and has been through all kinds of uh, witch hunts against you because of your politics. Does it give you hope to see with so many young people that the word socialism is not only a fetter but a point of attraction when they look at Sanders? No, I think that's – I'm really not surprised at that. What's called socialism conforms to the, the wishes and uh, concerns of a large mass of the population. Take, say, national health care. Uh, the population has been in favor of it for decades. Every comparable country has some form of national health care. The United States doesn't. It's uh, 
very much a business-run society. Um, priorities given to the insurance companies and so on, not because of the popular will. In fact, in, in periods like at the end of the Reagan years, when polls uh, ask people, uh, do you think that national health care should be in the Constitution? And a large majority said yes. And about 40% thought it already was because it's so obvious. Mm. Even now, uh, with all the hysteria about, you know, Obamacare and that, uh, still about 60% of the population favor some kind of national health care, which could be instituted pretty simply. The idea that it takes some radical change in the system is not true. You could start, for example, by just reducing the age for Medicare and take other small measures uh, like uh, cutting down the monopolization of drugs which is given by our extreme patent protections would open the possibility for the government to negotiate drug prices and achieve results comparable to other countries. There's many things that could be done and the population is for them. Mm. Whatever word is used, it doesn't seem to be surprising that when these views are put forward, they gain popular support. But maybe the most striking case is taxes. There's endless polls on taxes, and they all come out about the same. If you ask people, do you pay too much in taxes, they'll say, yeah, it should be reduced. Uh, if you ask, should taxes go up on the wealthy, very strong support. I mean, you talk about the, the gap between labels and candidates like Bernie Sanders, socialism versus what he actually is. You hear a lot of people on the left refer to Donald Trump as a fascist or representing some kind of American fascism, yet others who say that he's just it's basically just a more vulgar version of what's become mainstream Republican Party politics. What's your take on the Trump phenomenon? Well, I think the word fascist is pretty misleading. I don't know if he has any ideology, but it's not fascist ideology. On the other hand, I can kind of understand what people have in mind. Again, let me go back to my childhood. Uh, when I was seven or eight years old, I could listen to, uh, and did in fact, uh, listen to Hitler's speeches at the Nuremberg rallies over the radio. And I couldn't understand the words, but you could understand the mood of the audience and the nature of what he was doing. And that was frightening at the time. And there's something comparable now in an atomized country of disillusioned people who think everything's against us uh, we can't trust anything, we're, and we're separated from one another. We have no way to act in solidarity and uh, unity like in the old labor movement. Yeah, you could get a phenomenon like that developing. Yeah, and that brings the discussion full circle, because, I mean, there's nothing that actually brings the country together more than the Super Bowl. What does that say about the United States? If people want to have fun at the Super Bowl, okay, except for the question of uh, what's being done to these athletes who are being destroyed as human beings. Uh, but uh, separate from that, that's okay, as long as it does not displace their commitment to the kind of deeply significant social change uh, that has to take place if this is going to be a decent society. And remember that we haven't mentioned it, but there are two huge shadows looming over everything. Uh, one of them is that we're driving towards a precipice in which we'll destroy the possibility for 
a decent life for our grandchildren and others of their generation unless we do something pretty significant, radical and significant about the environmental destruction. And every single one of the Republican candidates says, let's not do anything or I don't believe it. That alone is a huge issue. The other is nuclear war. The threat is in fact increasing. The uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which ever since 1947 has uh, a doomsday clock where a group of experts uh, uh, try to determine uh, where we stand relative to total destruction. That's midnight. How close are we to termination? Uh, last year, they moved the clock two minutes closer to midnight because of up to three minutes for midnight, closest it's been in over 30 years. Now, this year, they maintained that same reasons, likely climate catastrophe and nuclear war. And in both cases, they pointed to something highly relevant to these elections. The Paris conference last month in December, there were there was some minimal progress, but it could not be a binding treaty. It had to be a voluntary arrangement. The reason for that is the Republican Party. They will simply not accept anything. Uh, that the second fact had to do with nuclear issues. They regarded correctly, I think, the Iran nuclear deal as a small step forward. But take a look at the position of, the, of every Republican candidate on that nuclear deal. They're competing as to who can eliminate it first. These are serious issues in the election. Very serious. Yeah. So I'll end with a profoundly unserious question because it'll hopefully get people to listen to you speak about the serious issues that you just raised. Uh, Carolina Panthers are playing the Denver Broncos this Sunday. It is the Super Bowl. What is the Noam Chomsky prediction of who's going to win this game? It really doesn't matter if you know nothing about either team. Honestly, you can choose it on the basis of which animal you like more or or which city you like more. Uh, but Carolina Panthers, Denver Broncos, who do you like? I, I favor the Panthers for one reason, which has nothing to do with sports. Their quarterback uh, made some pretty good comments about racism in sports. Yes, he did. You know, that, that's reason enough to root for them because then maybe his platform gets a little higher and he says something that actually helps people. It could be. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't read it on the sports page. I read it in the front pages. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hey, Professor Chomsky, th- thank you so much for taking the time. I, I know you're under the weather. I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. Thanks. Sorry, I couldn't see you today. Uh-huh. Another time for sure. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you so much to Noam Chomsky. And hey, since Professor Chomsky mentioned Cam Newton anyway, let's get right to uh, my column reading about Cam Newton and why I think he is so politically significant this Super Bowl season. This column is available at thenation.com and in the description of this podcast, and it's called Cam Newton, The Bridge to Somewhere. So I've written it before, and I'll write it again. 
There are two categories of political athletes, the explicit and the representative. The explicit are people like Muhammad Ali, Billie Jean King, or more recently Serena Williams or LeBron James, people who leverage and risk their cultural capital to speak out against the ills they see in the world. Then there's the representative, those whose very appearance, ethnicity, gender, or sexuality challenges the broader society to confront their own prejudices. Think about how the mere presence of Jackie Robinson or Gabby Douglas sent shockwaves for no other reason than that they were in front of a skeptical or even hostile audience and excelled. For years, Carolina Panthers quarterback Cam Newton has been ensconced in that second category, a representative athlete who sent hackles up the spines of fermenting sports writers and racist football fans. It has not been merely just that he's a black quarterback. We are, some social media eggs and Trump voters aside, past the point where being a QB while black creates a frenzied reaction. But Cam has not just been a quarterback who happens to be black. He plays with a joy and flair that rankles traditionalists who believe that being a quarterback means you have to have a constant grimace on your face or at least some approximation of Tom Brady's perpetually constipated visage. Cam smiles. Cam dabs. Cam is choosing to play quarterback in a way that is consistent with the person he is when the helmet comes off, and his entire team clearly feeds off his utterly authentic joy. Yet that combination of being unapologetically young, black, and gifted has earned him highly racialized critiques of being arrogant, flashy, or a bad role model. This is a slight evolution from the concerns sports writers raised before he was drafted about his intelligence and attitude. I've covered previously why those arguments are absurd. His attitude and intelligence are above reproach. As for arrogance, Aaron Rodgers, Brady, Peyton Manning, they wear their vanities like a full-length mink coat without criticism. It's all a dog whistle, yet one so shrill that it pierces ears beyond the canine persuasion. The message spread by these whistling quizlings has been, be black if you must, but be quiet about it. Yet on the eve of his first Super Bowl, Cam is getting explicit. In his first Super Bowl press conference, he was asked why he has become a lightning rod for criticism. Cam could have ducked this with the ease with which he dodges linebackers. Instead, he plucked everyone's card saying, I'm an African-American quarterback. That may scare a lot of people because they haven't seen anything they can compare me to. And there it is. Cam Newton is thrown down with his version of Muhammad Ali's famous phrase, I don't have to be who you want me to be. And it could not have come soon enough. People are already recoiling at Cam's injecting race into his answer. But that's like blaming a meteorologist for the rain. While some reach for the fainting couch, it's far more instructive to note those celebrating his words, a celebration that demonstrates the political space opened up by such a statement. Former NFL player Dominique Foxworth, who's a brilliant guy, said on ESPN's normally antiseptic radio show Mike and Mike in the Morning that it reminded him of W.E.B. Du Bois' writings on double consciousness and spoke at length about how proud he was that Cam has staked his ground as someone who refuses to live that double life where he's one person in front of powerful Caucasians and another with his friends and teammates. You know what? I'm going to venture without research that this was the first Du Bois reference in the history of Mike and Mike in the Morning. Now, when one takes a step back, it's stunning. The same player who before his rookie season had to hear Sports Illustrated's Peter King infamously brand him a phony who would make old school coaches blanch is showing in practice that he might be the most authentic person in sports. 
As he made clear at the press conference, and this is a quote, people are going to say whatever they want to say. And if I'm in this world living for that person, then I can't look at myself and say I'm Cam Newton because I'm not, because I'm living for you. This is an athlete taking the cultural capital earned by a Super Bowl appearance and using it to open up more space for anyone who wants to live life as their actual selves. No hiding, no false fronts. Cam Newton is building a bridge before our eyes from the representational world to the explicit. He is building a bridge with the kind of foundation that will encourage others to follow him across. And now before we end this week, I want to give the Just Stand Up Award. And guess what? It has nothing to do with the Super Bowl. It frankly has very little to do with the sports world and has everything to do with the real world. This week it goes to the second-tier Greek soccer team, AEL Larissa. Before their last game against Acharnaikos, both teams staged a sit-down to protest the death toll of migrants trying to reach Greece. All 22 players on both sides, plus coaches and substitutes, sat in silence for two minutes right there on the pitch. Now check out this announcement right over the PA system. And as I do, imagine this happening here. Imagine a statement like this being read over the public address system at a U.S. sporting event. This is what was read as the players sat down on the field. The administration of AEL, the coaches and the players, will observe two minutes of silence just after the start of the match in memory of the hundreds of children who continue to lose their lives every day in the Aegean due to the brutal indifference of the EU and Turkey. The players of AEL will protest by sitting down for two minutes in an effort to drive the authorities to mobilize all those who seem to have been desensitized to the heinous crimes that are being perpetrated in the Aegean, end quote. Well done, AEL Larissa. Well done indeed. That's it for this week at Edge of Sports. Thank you so much to Noam Chomsky. Thank you so much to Bev, uh, who's Noam Chomsky's assistant. Thank you, Bev. Thank you so much to Dangerous Dan Bloom, my producer. And thank you so much to Davey D and everybody who's holding it down in the Bay Area this weekend. For everybody out there who listens to Edge of Sports, remember, you can go to edgesportspodcast.com, listen to previous shows. We love that when you listen to the back shows. We love hearing from you. Email me at slate.com. Love getting those emails. And please take the time. Rate the show if you like it. Tell people why. All of that makes a huge difference. You can follow me on Twitter at Edge of Sports. We are out of here. Peace. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.